0: Hi listeners, Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read, to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co book club where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September, we'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at racheltompson.co slash book club. Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish and Shine podcast. I am your host, Author and literary magazine editor Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. Hi, lovely writers. This is a replay episode, and it's an interview I did with Alicia Elliott. And honestly, her words have stuck with me both from this very specific podcast interview, but also from essays I read before our interview and now her book of essays, A Mind Spread on the Ground. Since recording this interview, Alicia released this incredible touching book. And as she puts it, the book is an analysis of her own life, joy, shame, and vulnerabilities situated within the wider context of extractive capitalism and colonialism. Alicia is a writer- who is so solid in her beliefs and conviction, and this is really important for writers to really understand where they stand. As she says in the interview you're about to listen to, I think that when a writer doesn't have a good understanding of who they are and what their beliefs are, they're going to necessarily lack the conviction in their writing to go daring places and ask daring questions. My guest today is Alicia Elliott, who is the editor of a CNF issue at The Fiddlehead and also will be joining them as the CNF editor at The Fiddlehead. So welcome, Alicia. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We met to my delight when you joined my course Lit Mag Love uh, last January. And this seems so long ago to me in particular because when I started the course, for me, a guiding principle was that the act of writing and reading creates empathy, and that writers, by virtue of being willing to invest in a deep examination of society and individuals, made the world more compassionate. And in this difficult year in Canlet, I saw the light. I feel like that empathy is just not enough. And one thing that became a touchstone for me was your essay on seeing and being seen, because it really articulated why this was so for me. And in it, you said writers need to write not just with empathy, but with love. So how did you come to writing with so much love when, and then you also wrote in the essay that you weren't seen in any of the writing that you read while growing up?
1: As a reader, you only have what's offered to you, I guess. And in a publishing industry where I feel like the attention is on Primarily white women readers, because they do most of the book buying by those metrics, and most of the editors in publishing houses are white women, they have a very particular idea of who wants to read and who they're selling to. The problem with that, of course, is that if they're continually producing the same work, then they're going to have the same buyers, so they're automatically cutting off certain people from having those experiences you know and with that in mind, I feel like I definitely felt that when I was younger because there just wasn't anything for me to read. Or if there were Indigenous writers, particularly Indigenous women writers, their work was not published by big houses. Their work was published by smaller independent houses that made it more difficult for me to access it. And it was harder to get into the hands of the people who really needed to read it. With that in mind, like, I remember reading... I don't know if you know of the Dear America or Dear Canada series. That's a young adult kind of historical book. Anyways, I remember reading one that was supposed to be from the perspective of an indigenous girl. And just some of the stuff about it, it just didn't ring as true to me. And I think that that is a result of, you know, of thinking like, oh, well, how do I write about an indigenous girl? well, I'm just going to write about her like she's a white girl, but then just basically slap her race on her. And then that's how we show empathy, but that's not showing empathy. That's privileging a certain kind of experience and saying that in order to be empathetic, we have to imagine that these people are having the exact same experiences as opposed to appreciating how they have different experiences and they have different viewpoints. And that's where I think that the difference between Empathy and love comes in because when you love someone, you love them for who they are, or you should be loving them for who they are and not who you want them to be. With empathy, I think sometimes the ideas around who we empathize with and why is imagining that they are exactly like us when the reality is they aren't. And that should be okay. You should still be able to appreciate and love that person or love their point of view and stuff, especially if you're writing. So I guess so that's kind of how I came to... <laughs> this is very long and rambling, but um, uh, I, that's kind of how I came to thinking about these things very critically and trying to differentiate between whether empathy is enough, essentially.
0: I got that, and I, I did think you said it so well in your essay, and you're not rambling at all right now, so please <laughs> feel free to carry on. I, I like what you're saying about how you know they just slapped a race on her, and there's this presumed white reader it's like this kind of narcissism, really, like, oh, I just have to see myself in this person instead of appreciating where they are. It really was part of a big epiphany for me because of sort of all the stuff that was happening in Kenlit, too, going, oh, okay, actually, a lot of these writers are not as empathetic as I thought they were, like, <laughs> to bring them to that level of of understanding of the other and, like, just other people, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I want to talk about some advice and you said to take the books you love and figure out why you love them, read them with an eye towards how they're working on a craft level. Can you talk about any books that did that for you? We're talking about love again, which I think is yeah, great. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think that at a certain point I was kind of reading everything and trying to figure out why I liked it and what it was about it that Brought that feeling up in me, and I remember. Um, I, t- I feel like I talk about Leanne Simpson far too much, but also not nearly enough. But she wrote Islands of Decolonial Love, and that was the first book of hers that I came to. And I remember reading it and just being in awe. And I didn't understand like how she was creating this effect. So I remember reading it and just immediately wanting to reread it as soon as I was done. And it's fairly thin for a book, you know. It's not like a three hundred page book or anything like that, but when I went back and reread it and thought about okay, what is she doing here? How is she conveying this information? Why is it effective for her to reveal it in this way at this time? What character details are there? And what kind of impression are they giving? So kind of just going through and really critically reading that kind of work I feel like helps you so much as a writer in a way that just writing doesn't because if you're just writing, but you're not also reading and trying to figure out how to make your work better, it's kind of like you're hoping that that luck will kind of just come down upon you and, you know, you'll strike gold essentially, <laughs> which is so difficult because especially as writers, we all are also editors. And so whatever you end up writing, you're going to have to edit to make it better. And you won't have those tools unless you know what works and what doesn't and why. Quite recently, I read my hat's book *Heartberries*, which is incredible. And I still don't know how she does it. Her writing is tremendous. And unlike anyone I've, I've ever read, I remember talking about it with another person who had read it. And I was just like, how does she do that? Like even just the connections between sentences, I don't even understand. And she was like, I don't know. So <laughs> still trying to figure that one out, but <laughs> that one was really good. I really loved Chelsea Rooney's book pedal, you know, like There's so many great writers (laughs) that are doing really great stuff. I feel like if you love something, you should, and you want to also write something that other people will love or that even you will love, then it's important to know how to do that.
0: Literary writing is about making connections, I feel like, and you want to connect with your reader. Mm -hmm. To do that, you need to also be connecting with other writers through their works too. So you shared some writing advice you got early on. That as a writer, you just have to accept that you're going to betray everyone, which I think is just like such a great definition of CNF in some ways. Can you talk about the responsibility you feel as a creative nonfiction, a CNF writer?
1: I wrestle with this a lot as (laughs) as a writer of creative nonfiction who pulls a lot from my own life, especially in this day and age. I feel like when, you know, with social media and like Instagram and all these other things, there's this idea that you have to give everything, that everything should be up for consumption. And I don't think that, especially in writing, that that's necessary. You can get across what you need to get across without necessarily basically spilling your guts on the page every single time. So figuring out when to (laughs) betray everyone, you never know how someone is going to react to being written about because it's... A really strange experience to kind of see yourself the way someone else sees you and not have any control over that. Yes, there is sort of an act of betrayal when you write about someone. But I think that if you're very conscientious when you're writing about them, that they will probably read this and not in terms of like, I shouldn't say anything that I'm writing this thing about someone that's difficult and about something they did to me that was bad. I'm not saying you should (laughs) keep yourself from writing that. But I think thinking about why what you're writing is important to you and what you need to get across with it will help inform everything. So like, if you know exactly why, then I think it helps guide how you write about a situation so that it's not necessarily
0: exploitive. What was the second part of that question? It was something about knowing... The hardest things to write are also the most important. So in some ways... I mean, those two pieces of advice contradict each other a bit too. You don't have to spill it all out. And I get what you're saying. It's like we're kind of in this age of the confessional essay that is sort of all over the internet and sometimes ends up being kind of harmful. Often younger women who are writing the essays and haven't a little bit exploitative, let's say. Editors are just looking for, okay, who can tell me, you know, who can bleed this one out for me? So I get what you're saying there too. But then you're right. There's also that other thing where... If you have something really difficult that you're having trouble writing, it might be the very thing that you want to be writing.
1: Yes. I was actually talking with some friends about writing about trauma and incredible poet who everyone should read, Kinesia Lubrin, was saying that basically you need to make sure that you protect yourself. Sometimes your reader doesn't have to know everything to understand it. And she said something that I thought was just so profound and so perfect. That the traumatic act itself is not necessarily what you need to write about. It's like what you gleaned from the traumatic act. And therefore, in that way, you can talk about how this impacted you without necessarily having to go into all of the nitty gritty detail, you know. And so I think that that's an important distinction is like most of the time I feel like when people have to write about trauma or have to write about something very difficult, it's because of the emotions that are surrounding it. And to mind that you don't necessarily always have to write, you can write it, but you don't always have to leave it in all of the stuff that you don't want to share with people in terms of like the exact specific details of something awful that happened to you. You can allude to it. You can give them enough information so that they get an idea. And that can be enough because that isn't the most important thing anyway. So I think that when I say that, you know, like the most difficult things are the most necessary. It's usually talking about things that you need to work out for yourself and, you know, things that are difficult to come to terms with about yourself or about the world or about other people. And to do that, you need to write about the emotion. You don't always necessarily need to write with like documentary detail about traumatic experience.
0: I'm just emphatically nodding my head. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's true. I mean, a lot of writers, they find it they want to talk about, especially in CNF, you want to talk about probably pretty difficult things sometimes, maybe most of the time. And then it's like that balance between what you want to share and also even reliving the trauma through through writing it and, that, and the difficulty of writing that. And there's sort of a myth sometimes that writing about something traumatic is actually cathartic when often it can be re-traumatizing too.
1: Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's definitely stuff that I feel like I've written around, but I was like, I'm definitely not equipped to write this in any kind of detail now. I don't know if I ever will be like, you know, so it just depends. I think that it's important to know how much distance you have from the event emotionally, not just like temporally or physically, but like emotionally so that you can talk about it without hurting yourself
0: more emphatic head nodding here. <laughs> I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about your experience with lit mags and we're going to talk about the fiddlehead specifically but I want to start by talking about you and the first lit mag that you published with and what did that mean for your writing at the time?
1: I had a piece published online which was really exciting but the first lit mag that I published with was the Malahat Review for their creative nonfiction issue. I believe it was edited by Lynn Van Loven. And at that time, I was very, very nervous because I kept rereading, what is creative nonfiction? And then they're saying things like, it has to be more than just personal. It has to speak to a universal nature. And the piece that I was submitting was about my teenage pregnancy. And so I was like, I don't know if this is too personal or if there's something universal about it, but like they haven't obviously experienced this exact same thing. So it was kind of hard for me to even tell myself that this was a story that was worth other people reading and like that other people would be interested in it, but I submitted it anyway. And when it got accepted, I was pretty much over the moon because I was just like, oh my God, like this thing happened that I almost didn't do. I almost didn't even give them the chance to reject me because I was rejecting myself. So (laughs) it was really, really important to me and being able to work with an editor on your work from a literary magazine, I feel like was very, very special to me because it's something so different when someone comes to your work with admiration and with curiosity, and they're trying to work with you towards making it the best piece possible. They already know it's good because they accepted it for publication. but They're like, let's just make sure that it's polished as much as possible so that we can send it into the world that everyone can be awed by everything. And that is something that is so special and something that is so unique to, I think, literary journals in particular for emerging writers. So it was a very, very lovely experience.
0: What have you learned by editing other writers or even what about that experience of publishing the Malahat do you bring to editing? And then what have you then in turn learned by editing other writers that informs your own writing?
1: Editing is interesting because when I've been edited before. There I've had like good experiences and I've had experiences where it felt like like we didn't have the same ideas around what was important in the piece. And that can be a little bit difficult sometimes. So I find that for me, sometimes ask and the best thing for me to do when I'm editing someone's piece is to make suggestions but tell them why I'm making these suggestions or asking questions and giving them my impression because even for myself, sometimes it's something I think is important, or I need to explain. Another writer will read it, or an editor will read it, and say, "Well, I mean, you didn't really need to explain this. It doesn't really add anything." And that's surprising to me, but it's good to know because then, if you cut it, then the piece can be more concise. It can get more done quicker. <laughs> and so, um, when I edit someone's work, I want to make sure that I always tell them that you know. My word is not final. If there's something that I'm telling you that you feel uncomfortable with, please let me know because you know your work better than I know it. I just am telling you my impressions. So you know, sometimes if there is something that's super important that I don't realize, then once someone tells me about it, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes so much sense. Let's emphasize that. And so then that gives you a different way in to edit it so that any reader can come to it and get what the writer wants them to get out of it in a very controlled way. So I think that for me, it's kind of like a facilitator role when editing another writer's work, trying to ask them questions around like what they meant with this, what certain things mean to them and why it's important to them and what they want the reader to leave their piece with so that I can try and like help sharpen it so that it does exactly all of those things.
0: Those are the best, for me, those are the best experiences with editors and the experience that I try to bring to writers, too. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by my course, LitMag Mag Love. Lit Mag Love is the five week course that will help you get a big yes for your writing from a Lit Mag, and then another, and then another you work in a small cohort of other writers you start building that writing community we cover everything from cover letters to how to format your submission to how to research and find the right journals that will love to publish your writing In the course, we also have special guests who come, editors from literary magazines to tell us a little bit about their journals and you get some behind the scenes from each magazine. If you'd like to learn more about the course and register, you can do so at rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. So I want to talk to you about your DIY MFA (laughs) (laughs) because you're talking about how you took a year out from work and you went spent it reading and writing and learning all you could about craft. How was that? And what do you think that has meant for your writing? Like, how did that pay off in the long run or the semi long run right now?
1: I talk about this a lot because I didn't understand it at the time, but now I understand it. When I was in my undergrad at York, I had a professor of creative writing who, in the intro class at the very end, it was very dramatic. And <laughs> so he, uh, yeah, at the very last lecture, he was like, I am announcing that I am done teaching creative writing because none of you know how to read. And so I'm going to go to the English department and teach students how to read. And I was like, what are you talking about? I know how to read. So I was like, this man is ridiculous. But um, it's only now and after I had done my own kind of like DIY MFA program where I was Primarily doing a lot of reading and also a lot of movie watching, actually, because I feel like there's so much to be gleaned from screenwriting and character development and stuff like that in movies because they work in a different way than fiction. Anyways, but uh, I won't get too much into that.
0: I did notice that you, in another interview, were recommending Robert Mackey's story book, a poem about screenwriting. Yes, it is very good. Yeah, it had me for the first time really interested in picking it up, actually. I was like...
1: Oh. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'd always had a problem with structure and I couldn't really get my head around it. And screenwriting is very structured. And I feel like because it's such an easy investment to read something about screenwriting that talks about what they're doing, why this is the act break, this is what the purpose is of the act break. And so when you have someone explaining to you craft in very, very specific detail. And then are like, now watch this movie. And like, we'll talk about how this works. It really helped me in a way that I feel like a lot of books on writing that don't revolve around screenwriting, like fiction or creative nonfiction, they don't really get into the nitty gritty of why and how it's almost like, Oh, well, you know, you just follow your heart and you know, like, and maybe it'll be good enough. And, you know, and so it, it's almost like sometimes it's very abstract when we're talking about literary writing in a way that it isn't when they're like, no, like by page 10, you need to have your inciting incident. And, and so it makes you think about things differently. Anyways, I would very much recommend reading that book or Amon Buckbinder's The Way of the Screenwriter. There's just like really, really they go in (laughs) into crap. And this is where to me, when I read those books, it made me start thinking about what I could glean from other writers of literary works. And that's where I kind of like, was like, okay, I did not get that much actual writing done that year. Most of it was spent reading, analyzing, like really trying to understand how things worked, why they worked What were the pros and cons of first-person narration? What were the pros and cons of third-person narration? And really thinking around these things so I could figure out what was the best way to tell stories that I wanted to tell. I think that you know, if I had just spent the whole year writing and not reading, I would have been wondering how to do these things. And someone would read it and be like, it's not really working. And then I'd just be sitting there scratching my head being like, well, I don't know what to do or how to get it to work. And that's when I find reading is the most important thing you can do as a writer, because if you're stuck and you know, you're know you writing something and someone has written something either with a similar kind of perspective or with a similar point of view or similar structurally, then you can be like, okay, well, what did they do? And then figure out why it worked for them, if it would work for your piece. And if not, at least you have like those wheels turning in your head thinking around, well, that won't work for me but maybe something else will. And so I think it's just like a shifting in perspective. And because of that, I feel like I have so much more control in my writing and it totally changed the way that I write. So it kind of makes it so that when I'm writing, like I'm, yes, I'm in the moment and stuff, but I think a lot as I'm reading what I've written about what the impact is of what I've just written and whether it's the right time to reveal this or whether it's the right... Narration style. It makes me more critical of my work as I'm writing, so I can kind of edit as I work instead of just writing something and then being like, I don't know if this is all working, and then having to rewrite everything. So it definitely has helped me a lot. And I think it could help a lot of emerging writers because I think we're all like, oh, well, to be writers, we have to be writing, which is true. But I think that, you know, if you're not reading at least as much as you're writing, then you're really, really putting yourself at a disadvantage. And you have the power to kind of like, even the score a little bit in that sense, so that you have this knowledge of craft that you can draw from like a well. So I just encourage everyone to read very, very widely and and read often. So
0: yeah, it's kind of like a shortcut to development. It sounds like that's how you spent the year too, is just understanding and reading like a writer. That's the title of a great book book as well by Francine Prose about just how to approach your reading to understand the craft and what's working, what's not. As someone I'll turn to many times to get your take in real time through the lovely social media that we have available, (laughs) (laughs) is that double-edged sword, but it's been great to see things that you're bringing attention to. And I'm wondering... How has being vocal about this, about Ken Lit Accountable and other issues impacted your writing in terms of your own voice? So finding that voice maybe more, I'm guessing, but you'll tell us. And then also in just your time, like practical things, like your time to write and your energy.
1: I think it's a hard balance to strike. And I have times where I'm just like, I can't go on social media today. It's just not happening <laughs> because there's just... There's always something <laughs> happening, and you know sometimes you can deal with it better days than others, so I'm becoming more aware of when I need to step back and when I need to take breaks. and I think that one of the things that really hit me I found myself wondering, like, this is the industry I want to get into. These are the writers that I would hope to be like working with or getting to know, so I found myself wondering like, why aren't they saying anything, and then realizing. Oh yeah. They have a lot to lose in this. So as we're opposed to, I did not have very much to lose because I was still at like the bottom of everything. So for me, it did allow me to have a little bit of freedom in the way that other writers don't because the people that they're criticizing are their friends or their coworkers or people that they have to see in literary festivals and stuff. So I found it was easier for me to say things that were critical. Without worrying about how it would immediately impact me, there was a fear that it would impact me in terms of people not like denying me opportunities or, you know, whatever. But I found that as I was rationalizing it, I was like, well, I mean, if they do do that, I won't know about it. So (laughs) it's fine. As far as I know, like, I'm as far as I'm ever gonna go in this industry. So why not? And so, I don't condemn anyone who hasn't spoken out about these kinds of things. There's always so many different factors. And some people aren't comfortable sharing those opinions. And that's totally fine. I think that for me, probably because of my dad, I've always had really very strong opinions. And finding a voice has never really been a question for me because I feel like I've had a voice for so long and had to hone it for so long through various things in my life that. It seemed very natural for me to speak about these sorts of things. And so I feel like it was kind of okay for me to do this in ways that it might not have been comfortable or okay for other writers to do it.
0: Absolutely. And I think it clarifies for me that you had the voice and I just started listening. So I'm really glad that I tuned in finally. (laughs) So I read researching for this interview that you told Prism there is a difference between a writer who puts their ego into the story and a writer who puts their heart into the story. Can you tell writers listening what you mean when you say this and when you say also do what's right for the story, even if it's not what you originally had in mind? I think that
1: it's very tempting to kind of think of writers as this God type figure and so everything that we're creating comes from us because it does, but I find whenever I go into a story with a preconceived notion or an essay with a preconceived notion, I end up having a very difficult time writing it because I find that as I'm writing it, I'm trying to force it to be this thing that it's really trying not to be. <laughs> and my subconscious is kind of like pulling me in another direction. That's more interesting, but I'm trying to force it to stay in this direction because that was what I originally conceived of. So I think that That is a result of kind of privileging your ego and saying like, well, this was my original idea. So I'm going to stick to it instead of allowing yourself room to breathe a bit in your work and allowing yourself the ability to change your mind. Like you may have gone into something thinking you were writing about this and realized that you're actually writing about something completely different. That is also interesting. And that process of discovery, I think when you're writing is thrilling as a reader because you can see that a writer is following their own interests and it definitely reflects in the writing in a way that doesn't if they continue to stubbornly force the story that they had originally thought of. So I think that's kind of what I had in mind. I was talking about writing with your heart versus writing with your ego and further I kind of touched on this I think a little bit before but I think that sometimes as writers it's very easy to kind of not examine ourselves at all. Because we're like, well, we're examining the world and we're doing very good work. But I think that when a writer doesn't have a good understanding of who they are and what their beliefs are, not just around writing, but around the world, like the things in the world, that they're going to necessarily lack the conviction in their writing to go daring places and ask daring questions. And I feel like I can always tell... When a writer is holding back because they're scared of what they're going to find out about themselves, or they're scared of what they're going to find out about the world, things that they would rather not know. And that's unfortunate because sometimes I find that when I'm reading a piece of creative nonfiction, it's good and I'm excited about it. And then as I continue going, I'm like, okay, so I kind of see where they're going here. I'm excited to see where they end and they stop pushing themselves and allow themselves to end in an easy place that doesn't require critical thinking on their own part. And it's so disappointing (laughs) because I feel like the thing that I'm constantly saying and my, my constant critique of so many, I wouldn't say not even just creative nonfiction writers, but just writers in general is go deeper. If you came to this answer very easily, then there's probably more there that you're not getting to. You know, you could make it richer. You could make it more interesting. You could make it more difficult, more vulnerable. So, you know, if you're going somewhere very easy, then you have to ask yourself, why is it so easy? It shouldn't be this easy. And if it is this easy, then is it because I chose for it to be easy? And I feel like many times the writer does choose for it to be easy in pieces that aren't quite working. And that's where the difficulty comes in. Because if they were to allow themselves space to be a bit messy, then they would lead themselves to more interesting places and it would be more revelatory writing in general.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Allow themselves the space to be messy. It feels like there's often fear involved when a writer does that where they kind of just exit early and like, okay, I'm getting out of here as fast as possible. (laughs) (laughs) I think what you said is really helpful for writers to think about their work before they submit to you. Like, is it messy? Have they taken the easy road or have they really dug deep in, like they've gone deep into the work? What should a writer expect from you when their work is accepted by you? Like, do you make developmental suggestions? How do you work with a writer?
1: It always depends on the piece. Sometimes there will be a piece that is requiring very little editing because, you know, it's very polished. And sometimes like I've accepted a piece where, you know, as I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, this is very good, but I think that they're doing themselves a disservice by starting in the wrong spot or not having as clean of an introduction or, you know, some of the pros could be just kind of cut here and there and we'll make it a really tight piece. I don't want people to think that, you know, they necessarily have to submit perfect drafts. I'm looking mostly for good work. And so if that means that for some pieces, I might have to do a little bit more work with them, to get them to where we're both really happy with it and ready to publish, then I'm willing to do that work. As I said earlier, I want to make sure that the writer is happy. I don't want to come in as an editor and say, this isn't working and you have to change it or I'm not publishing. I want it to be a very nourishing mutual relationship where we're learning from one another to try and do what's best for the piece. And so I try to keep my ego out of it. Although obviously for everyone, it's like, you make a suggestion and someone's like, that's stupid. And you're like, so <laughs> <laughs> initial kind of reaction. But I mean, I'm pretty good at like, you know, just doing that and then waiting and then being like, okay, let's talk. <laughs> so um, I don't want people to think that, you know, it's going to be terrible to work with me as an editor. I'm pretty good at, at like, you know, managing things and trying to make sure that they're the most important person. They know their story they know how they want to tell it. And it's up to me to try and help manage that and help them figure out the best way to make sure that the readers read it that way. I will work with writers to get a piece to where it needs to be. But I think that the main thing is I'm looking for writers doing something that is brave, that is interesting, there's so many different pieces that I really love. I'm not looking for anything in particular in terms of form or content. I just really want to see that passion on the page. This is a story that you feel is very important and you know why you're writing it. And I just want to see that reflected in the work. And, you know, if there's little nitty gritty things that we need to work out or work through, I'm willing to do that with a writer because I don't know. I think the work is worth it. I think the writer is worth it.
0: Can you tell us about a recent piece that you did select for publication that was worth it and why you chose to publish that writer?
1: This was for the new quarterly did uh, We Are Listening series, and they kind of let me do whatever I wanted with it, which was kind of great. So I spoke with Angela Wright, who's a writer and I believe a journalist.
0: She's also one of my students, actually. She told me about her acceptance to fiddlehead. That's great. Oh,
1: my gosh. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I ended up accepting another one of her pieces for the fiddlehead issue. Her piece, the place that is supposed to be safe, talks about her experiences as a black girl going through the schooling system. And it starts with her talking about the first time that she had an indigenous teacher and talking about residential schools and the ways that, you know, schools are not always safe. And then from there talks about the ways that she was basically criminalized for being Black in in senses, not like she was necessarily arrested, but she was seen as the angry Black girl. And she was always the one who was being sent to detention and stuff like that and being treated like she didn't belong there, that this school was not a safe place for her by teachers, by the principal and stuff. So it was a work that was very brave. And also I really, really loved... Because I'm a sucker for Black and Indigenous solidarity. I thought that the way that she compared the experiences, but but was very clear and careful about how they were different, but they were parallel, was very, very well done. And at the end of the piece, you know, she's standing outside because she's just had this fight with the principal where this white supremacist little piece of shit was saying stuff to her on the bus and was very smug, expecting not to get in trouble, And, you know, even the principal who ends up defending her undermines her experiences and whatnot. So she goes outside and she's just thinking about her Indigenous teacher and reflecting on that. It was just such a powerful moment for me in the writing. And she's such a brilliant writer who is willing to be vulnerable and go places that other people I don't think would be willing to go. Her other piece in The Fiddlehead is very brave. And I think it's a very important piece. I don't want to talk about it too much just because I feel like it's not fair to talk about it without people being able to read it, but it's very good. And it's along the similar lines. Like she's just willing to mine these experiences and figure out why they're important and what they taught her. Like it's not just an individual thing, but she situates herself within a context. And that's just very rich to me because it shows me that she's thinking about these things and deeply. She's a very talented writer. I love her very much. (laughs)
0: Yes. My feelings are the same for her. And it's interesting because I find that what you're saying now is going back to what you said at the beginning too, about writing from that personal experience, but making it universal too. And so Mm. what you're saying about how she situates herself, it's like this personal story, but then it has this bigger implications.
1: Yes. I just want to say that, you know, I am super enthusiastic about the writers. So I think that that will be reflected in when I, obviously when I work with you is I'm excited about your work and I want to be excited by your work. So if you're excited about it, then please send it. Or even like, if you're kind of nervous about it because you're like, I don't know, you're questioning yourself, just send it. Because like, if I didn't send it, then it wouldn't have been published in the Malahat Review, my piece.
0: Just trust yourself and you never know what's going to happen. Great. Well, thank you so much, Alicia. Thank
1: you. <laughs> it was a pleasure.
0: So that was my interview with Alicia Elliott. She is the new creative nonfiction editor at The Fiddlehead, which is published four times per year at the University of New Brunswick. And The Fiddlehead was first published in 1945. And it is known as a who's who in CanLit, according to their website. (laughs) So I wanted to talk a bit about things we can glean from my conversation with Alicia. So she talked about how, as I said at the top of the episode, I think when a writer doesn't have a good understanding of who they are and what their beliefs are, they're going to lack the conviction in their writing to go daring places. And she says you can always tell when a writer is holding back because they're scared about what they're going to find out about themselves or about the world. They stop pushing themselves and allow themselves to end in an easy place. And her constant critique of writers is to go deeper in general. If you came to this very easily, she said, there's probably more there that you're not getting to. So I think that's a great invitation for every writer to go deeper in your writing. In terms of working with Alicia, she wants this to be a nurturing relationship. And so she tries to take her ego out of it, and is pretty good at managing things and making sure that the writer feels like the most important person. So if she's really excited about seeing work and looking forward to seeing submissions of creative nonfiction from people. And speaking of creative nonfiction, I think also another part of the conversation that is helpful for people who are writing CNF, creative nonfiction, is is her reference to the conversation she had with Kinesia Lubrin, talking about how you don't have to write about the traumatic act, but about what you gleaned from that experience. And there's definitely stuff that she says, I've written around and I'm not ready to write about in some detail now. She invites writers of creative nonfiction to also be conscientious about writing about someone and really understanding why they do. And that comes again, there's that deepness you want to explore in your writing, But even just your deep self knowledge that's also required to do this kind of writing. This episode of the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by LitMag News Roundup. Presented by Becky Tuck, writer, editor, teacher, LitMag enthusiast, LitMag News Roundup lets you stay up to date on all the latest news in the LitMag world, learn about exciting new magazines, calls for submissions job and fellowship opportunities and find out which magazines are closing, meet new editors, keep up with trends in litmag publishing, discover fabulous opportunities for publishing your work. You can do all that when you subscribe at litmagnews.substack.com. That's litmagnews.substack.com. And by Litmag Love, my 5-week course that helps you get a big yes from a journal you love and then another and another Sign up at rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. Finally, if you are working at a litmag and you want to do an exchange ad with me, you can find out about exchange ads at rachelthompson.co slash ads. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is presented by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about all that I do for writers to help them write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. If you learned something from this episode, if it helped you with your own writing, pass it along and share it with other writers that you care about in your community. You could also rate and review this podcast. It really does help other writers find the podcast, and I'd be so grateful to you for that. And just keep writing. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co book club.